Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Helen, and I'm not Stephen, but Stephen's gone home. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, Stephen and I catch up on all the latest from the campaigns. We talk to Spencer Livermore, Lord Livermore, who ran Labour's previous general election campaigns about what's different this time. Kate Mossman joins us to talk about 20 years since Cool Britannia. And finally, I do a dramatic reading of the New Statesman's 2nd of May 1997, optimistic, hopeful new Labour leader. Let's talk about the election, Stephen. Woohoo! Okay, so I um, started off my campaign by being asked for a prediction uh, on the week in Westminster, and I already regret it deeply because I said two things, which is one, that I wanted to go out and talk to people, which I'm going to at the end of this week, and secondly, that I had only succeeded in making any predictions in the last 18 months when I assumed the worst possible result for the left liberals. Uh, And therefore, I said a Tory majority of 50 seats. Now, having talked to more people... I am I am in the in the, the fabled hair on fire territory of thinking that in totally in terms of overall vote share I think I I feel very I feel very pessimistic about Labour. Whether or not they can run local campaigns is now, I guess, the question. But, um, you know, a poll had them on no seats in Scotland, 12 seats for the Tories there. Um, Another poll that came out um, on Monday with Roger Scully had uh, the Conservatives 10 points ahead in Wales, which was the only one of the four nations of the UK that Labour won last time. I I am feeling less good for Labour. Yeah, I mean, so... The difficulty is, is if you go into an election with with your leader's um, results, yeah, is polling being being where it is? You there are two things which can happen. One, you can use the TV debates to turn people around on your on your guy, or what will tend to happen is a process where your leadership rating and your party rating meet somewhere in the middle. Uh, obviously, somewhere in the middle is 18, 19%. 19% feels to me a plausible idea of where Labour's floor might be because that's what they got in the European elections. Um, although, actually, I think they've had... So, it's an interesting thing. The polls are obviously awful. Um, it doesn't look to me like Labour is turning around. However, they are actually having quite a good campaign to bore on and on, as I do every week, about about what goes on in on the radio. When I do a morning call, my email, which if you haven't signed up to yet, you really should. When I, when I do morning call, I either listen to Radio 6 or 6 Music, where you just get the news every half an hour. And actually, 
they are doing a very good job of Jeremy Corbyn's going to give you something nice, often something very reasonable and from kind of, you know, you know, very mainstream left stuff, you know, more bank holidays, free school meals for all primary pupils. The Conservatives have kind of said, oh, only a strong economy can deliver Labour's nice policy. And the Lib Dems have gone, only the Lib Dems can be somewhere equidistant between these two parties, which actually is not a bad um, place for their message to be. They've been boosted by the fact that this has had remarkably few retirements. I can find no uh, example of the polls being this bad for a party. Where yeah, so ninety, so twenty ten, you know, Labour predicted to lose lots of seats, which they did. They you know they Tories made ninety seven gains, their their record since nineteen thirty one for a single night. Loads of MPs retired. 1997, ditto. Loads of uh, Conservative MPs retired because they would, yeah, they looked at the polls and went, "Do you know what, mate? You're all right, thanks." Although amusingly, lots of Tory MPs also stood down in 1992, thinking they'd lose, and then didn't. Lol. Um, but it helps that Labour's personal majority, where MPs have worked hard and been there for a long time, won't be standing down. Now, and hang all- on a minute, because you you are not you are Mister. There is no such thing as a personal vote. I'm not. There's no such thing as a personal vote. There's is that no difference from an as, incumbency factor? I guess. Yeah, I think the thing is that there is. The, I think there is such a thing as a personal vote. However, like if your personal, if you've got an amazing personal vote, so some people who have who are smarter and have better computers than I did some regression on, say Douglas Carswell, right? And you you can sort of find about maybe two thousand people who voted for him, but that includes a the fact he took a lot of his local association with him. He certainly took most of the activists. He didn't take that many members, but in terms of the people who went out on doors, knew how to work the photocopiers, right? So your your personal vote is a lot of things, right? It's it's like your 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 brother in law who, who who does all of the, the number crunching so you know where where the vote is. It's the the people you've helped. It's the people who've seen you because you opened their school, etc. etc. But the thing about that personal vote is if your personal vote is two thousand, three thousand, that is brilliant. Unless, of course, there's a national swing that is bigger than 2,000 or 3,000 votes. And there is no seat where 2,000, 3,000 votes can get you elected without a party or is indeed meaningful in its its own right. The Douglas Carswell claim is he once claimed he had a personal vote of 9,000, which you just can't make work in terms of what happened to the Tories and UKIP elsewhere. But... But there is an in- and there is also an incumbency uh, factor, which is most powerful among second-term MPs. So one of the to talk about the big thing this week, which I think is the Lib Dems. One of the problems for the Lib Dems in terms of oh, they're going to gain all these seats back, is what tends to happen is if you've been in office for one term and you're an MP, I don't know who else you'd have been in office if you and you're and you're running again. What tends to happen is people go hasn't killed us yet. And you get a slight boost, which is one of the reasons why the electoral map has got worse and worse for Labour every time. So you had like those 10 gains or whatever it was in 2005, and they all got this massive swing in 2010. Then in 2015, obviously they gained seats in both 2010, but then the 2010 gains had this massive swing towards them in, in excess of the national swing uh, to the Tories. And that made the map more formidable for Labour still. Ignoring what we think and all of the polls and so far all of the local council elections point to which is 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 a further loss of seats the other thing to watch out for will be massive increases in the tory lead in say gower 
27 votes. So they, they won Gower by 27 votes last time, so they will. you would expect them to solidify that majority. There are two things that I think are really, that we didn't, I was talking earlier about how we got last time wrong, and it was because we thought that, yes, there'd be lots of defections away from the Lib Dems to punish them for going into coalition. What we didn't really see was that those would go to the Tories who they were in coalition with, rather than Labour, the opposition. So the two big factors, I guess, this time are... Do the Lib Dems actually pick up a lot of seats or is their vote too diffuse to really help them make gains? And also, is UKIP an extant political force anymore? And Or is that just vote being just eaten up and boosting the Tories, particularly in places like Wales? Yeah, and in Wales, it's particularly bad for Labour because... So the UKIP vote is predominantly, but not exclusively, former Conservative. But also, the other, the other thing about former Conservative, right, is it depends where you start the point, right? If someone voted Labour 97, Labour 2001, Labour 2005, or Tory 2005, and then Tory 2010, are they a Labour or a Conservative voter? Are they a swing voter? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But... This sounds like a theological argument, Stephen, which brings me neatly on to Tim Farron. Tim Farron, yeah. So you interviewed him um, for the magazine, and uh, he... Let's not beat around the bush. He turned off all the lights in his house and pretended to be out when you tried to follow him up with some questions about gay sex. Yeah, so I interviewed him before the snap election was announced. There's a bit which I I didn't include because it felt excessively cruel seeing as I loudly agreed with him on the tape. So obviously you can put something in where the other person gets something wrong and be like, well, I, a far-sighted... He kind of went at one point, if there was an election tomorrow, which there won't be. Um, But So most of it was in Manchester Gorton. Uh, Then the sort of questions about whether or not he thinks that gay sex is sinful re-erupted uh, and uh, and yes for a variety of reasons he he did not um, get back to me they did uh, finally after a couple of days sort of realize that they were going to have to sit on the grenade and he kind of went yes I, I don't sorry no I don't think that uh, gay sinful. sex is a sin um, but I th- I think the, the point to take about this well there are a couple points which is one which is a kind of and like I said on the podcast last week, I did feel there was an almost a sense of glee about it from some Labour activists who have bit, had a right old shellacking for still saying with Labour when, you know, Jeremy Corbyn goes on press TV, right, or, you know, whatever it is, being able to say, well, you know, you act like Tim Farron's shit don't stink. Actually, here's the thing that he's got wrong. So I did see a bit of that on it. But also the fact that he handled it so badly says bad things about the, the Lib Dem kind of seaworthiness, right? Yeah, I, I think in so I think there are a couple of, of things I think which are true about the row. One, my instinct, and one of the good things about elections is they stress test your your sort of basic hunches. But my instinct is is that the Lib Dems can get away with a lot of shit because for a lot of people the point is who they're not. In this case, they're not a Tory party committed to Brexit. They're not a riven Labour party driven. Li- 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 a riven party led by a man they don't much like. So in an odd way, as long as the Lib Dems are not those two things, which they're not because the whole point of Lib Dems is meh, odds and sods, um, they, they, they will there be fine. There goes our Lib Dem listener. Um, we, I mean, we actually have a large Lib Dem listenership and I love all of them. Um, so my, my instinct is that it means they will be fine in terms of having a success this election. However, in terms of their dream, which is that they can use this election to not just restore their status as the third party 
but become Britain's main opposition and eventually the government. I think that shows them that's been holed below the waterline. The other thing is I suspect they will have a very good local election. And at that point, the full force of the Tory attack machine, their allies in the right wing press, uh, will obviously largely be concentrated on Labour, but a large chunk of it will turn to the Liberal Democrats. And I think we learned how effectively the Lib Dems have wargamed their ability to get through that kind of situation. And it turns out the answer is not well at all. So with the Tim Farron stuff, it, there was, it was an issue in the leadership election uh, that he believed that he was you know, an evangelical Christian who has, in terms of the stuff he's voted for, his voting record is good. However, he has, and this is something that actually a, 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 a non-trivial number of, of sort of Labour MPs have done, he has gone missing on, on votes on abortion and, 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 and homosexuality. Yeah. Um, so it should have been obvious that they needed to have, and he also got, you know, got a battering from Kathy Newman immediately after being elected. It should have been obvious, and I think it was obvious to a lot of people in the Lib Dems that they needed to have a answer on it that was, as you say, seaworthy. They didn't have one. Uh, and then they eventually got dragged into... Yeah, so at a point it looked like he said something that he didn't really believe after having been beaten up by his advisers for seven days into saying it, which is a kind of... I mean, at least it closes the issue down. I think it was probably... I mean, definitely morally it's the right thing to do, but, you know, tactically I think it was probably the right thing to do. But it has taken a little bit of the shine off off, off Tim Farron. Anyway, we can't... We've got other lots of other sections to get through, Stephen, so we can't have any time to talk about all the amazing policies that Theresa May has announced. Which is just as well, because there aren't any. (laughs) Thank you very much. Here all week. And now we're joined by Spencer Livermore, Labour peer, uh, veteran of uh, not only the 1997 uh, general election campaign, but 2001, 2005 and 2015. to draw on his memories of, of, of all of those contests. Some, I really some want to not wallow so in 1990s nostalgia because it makes me happy. It's my happy place. <laughs> so at what point during the 97 campaign did it become obvious that the scale of the victory become obvious? Uh, I think for me, and I remember it incredibly vividly, was uh, the last two days of the campaign, we were all sort of sent out on buses throughout the, the country to, to key seats. I remember getting on the coach uh, to come back on the on the on the last day, and the exit poll came on the radio, and it was a huge scale. And I think no one on the campaign had allowed themselves to believe that it would be uh, uh, even a victory, never mind a huge victory, because pretty much everyone on that campaign was scarred by '92. I mean, even me, who was at school in '92 remember sitting up watching the results in 92 and being utterly devastated. And obviously many of the people who were very senior on that campaign in 97 had been very active and very senior on the campaign in 92. And so they all carried those very personal memories. And so the the whole campaign was dominated by a determination, not just not to be complacent, but just almost not to allow yourself to believe in case it happened again. And so for me personally, I think for many people, it was only when it really became almost real at 10 o'clock on that night that we really allowed ourselves to believe what was happening. Uh, my other question is then, because I've been doing editing lots of our stuff that's a, a, you know, a 
from our archive that's immediately post-1997 election. And this feeling of optimism. I think even if the Tories win a big, big, big majority this time, I don't think they're going to have, there's not going to be that euphoria. I mean, there'll be a sense of triumphalism, right? But I don't think that spirit's coming back this time, is it? It doesn't feel like a euphoric election. It doesn't, but then I suppose we're on the wrong side to know whether there's any euphoria. I mean, obviously in 97, if you were a Tory, you probably weren't feeling massively euphoric. And so I guess it's hard to uh, compare directly, but I think you're right. There's not the sense of this is not an optimistic campaign unless you are the hardest of hard Brexiteer and you've achieved everything you've been fighting for. Um, but I think even in the country, you know, 97 was about, as you say, optimism, a sense of renewal, a sense of modernization, a sense of progress. None of those things particularly feel present now. And obviously for all of us on the sort of left, center left, this feels like the, the end of progress or the arresting of progress. Uh, and particularly, I think, you know, we feel that I think if you're on the centre-left, you're supposed to believe in this narrative of continuous progress. And, and suddenly we see all of the things, all the progressive things that we believe in about to end. Um, and that is, you know, uh, uh, the, very, the polar opposite, I suppose, of 97. So in 1997, there were four, well, there was a fifth channel launch that year, but there were four major channels, you know, a much more limited and therefore easily controlled media landscape. By the time you were sort of running the show in 2015, there was this hugely fragmented social media, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think, how much do you think the lessons of media management from 1997 can still apply in 2017? I think you're right. I really do vividly remember 97 and 2001, to be honest, the same. Literally gathering around the television sort of three or four times a day for the the news broadcast. And pretty much everything you did was geared around the 1pm news, the 6 o'clock news, 10 o'clock news, and then tomorrow's papers. And that were, they were incredibly fixed moments of the day. Um, by 2015, as you say, the news cycle was minuscule. That A story would last maybe an hour, maybe two hours. And it, it transforms the nature of the campaign because you don't have one big story each day. Um, you have to have multiple uh, stories each day, which you can control far less. And, and and the other thing I think that has totally changed, not just what you describe in terms of the news cycle, but also the leaders' debates. Now, it looks like they're not going to happen this time to anything like the same degree. But 97, 2001, 2005, you, you had a morning press conference. Each party had a morning press conference. And that was your ability really to control the story of the day, your ability to respond to your opponent's story of the day and try and set the agenda each day. That gave, I think, the campaigns much more control over the campaign. Now it feels much more like the media has control over the campaign and the campaigns are responding to the, the agenda the media is more able to set. Um, so I, it, I think it has really shifted the balance of power between the two respective uh, groupings uh, within the campaigns. What are the ingredients of a successful political general election campaign? Um, I think increasingly I'm of the view that campaigns don't massively matter. Um, <laughs> this is not what I want to hear six weeks out of spending every weekend uh, writing about campaigns, but uh, go on. I, I think that um, there are some exceptions to that. I think perhaps 2005 could be an exception to that and 92 is probably an exception to that. But I think broadly the outcome of an election is set a year or more prior to the actual event. And really, the election 
it is sort of um, sometimes it's an exercise in just making sure you don't slip up properly, which was like what 1997 was like. Or sometimes it's, you know, a, a desperate attempt to claw something back, perhaps like it was for Labour in 2015. Um, but if the fundamentals are in the wrong place, however good your campaign is, you're not going to be able to fix the fundamentals in those six weeks. I think, you know, elections are won on competence, on the economy, on leadership. And if those things are not present, a campaign is not going to change One great, uh, Yeah, I, I think that's true. I, I, I always hope that we're at least, I, you know, the campaigns that I've covered up, we're learning from our mistakes. And I think probably, you know, the I agree with Nick debate moment, we probably over-covered that, right? I don't know. So my instinct is actually, I think, in terms of the Tories not squeezing the Lib Dems further, I feel I agree with Nick probably did matter a bit. Uh, in my instinct, it would have been obviously they lost seats anyway. But I mean, I know that you weren't in that election, but, but obviously you're a keen observer of all these things. Do you think the debates mattered at all in 2010? I think maybe when on my list of campaigns that mattered, I'm perhaps 2010 did matter, in as much as the Tories had a very, very poor campaign uh, and they missed the opportunity probably to get the majority they should have got and ended up in a hung parliament. Um, did debates matter? I think they did in as much as the one thing debates can do is level the playing field, particularly when you're at a financial disadvantage, because they give you guaranteed moments throughout the campaign where you are guaranteed exposure, uh, you know, on, on, a level play, on a level playing field that you just couldn't get without, without debates being there. So I think that they, I think, you know, Labour had far less money to spend than the Conservatives. A lot of the time Labour was on um, the back foot and on a good day, Gordon compared very well uh, favourably to uh, David Cameron in that kind of setting. So I think that they um, did play a part uh, and they did contribute to Labour having a much more creditable campaign than perhaps otherwise we would have done. Um, so I think I probably would add 2010 to the list of, of campaigns that mattered. And if you were, this is a very unfair question, if you were running this the, the Labour campaign this time, assuming you can't change anything, you can't get in a time machine and undo you know any news stories that have happened, anything like that. What would you? What what things should it be doing? Or what things should we look out for to see whether or not it is doing to kind of gauge its success as a campaign, regardless of the result? I think, really, the less they do, the better. No, that's bad news for journalists because Theresa May doesn't want to do anything either. So it's just going to like bore us all. In to as death. much, I'm, I'm, I'm. I think I'm of the view that Jeremy Corbyn's current unpopularity or, his, or unpopularity so far has been driven by his absence rather than his presence. In as much as uh, people dislike the fact that he is not a strong leader, the fact that he is not particularly dynamic, not particularly effective. And, and broadly, the Labour Party has been quite incompetent uh, being led by him. That is what I think is driving the current low level of Labour what in the polls. What if you punch someone like John Prescott did? Because actually, weirdly, didn't that kind of go quite well for John Prescott in that it turns John Prescott into this, oh, John Prescott, he's such a rogue... Um, I, I, having sat there in 2001, I don't remember it being a, oh, really? a good, a good, well, <laughs> it was good probably not a good day from the inside. Okay, fair <laughs> Actually, enough. if you remember that day, it was the day when Tony Blair was confronted by Sharon Storer 
Oh, and uh, so Jack, Jack, Straw was bo- Jack Straw was booed by the Police Federation. And I think all three of those things happened on the same day. Was that the worst so day of the campaign? It was definitely then? the worst day of the campaign. But, you know, the, the reason that didn't derail that campaign is because the fundamentals were in the right place. And the strategy was so strong that it pulled us back onto the tracks that we should have been on. And you weren't derailed. A campaign that had much weaker fundamentals and weaker foundations would have been de- derailed by events of that magnitude. And I think that that sort of proves the point that it's about these fundamentals, it's about these train tracks. What's the single biggest event that has completely over, like, upturned your strategy for campaign or been the hardest thing to react to in any of the ones you've worked on? No, it's a good question. Um, I don't remember one specific event, but... It's, you know, every day is a battle between your the story you want and the story you, your opponents want to dominate the day. And, you know, in, in countless times, that if, the, if the toys have a stronger story than you, then you what, how the best laid plans are completely blown away and you spend the whole day on the defensive, the whole day um, trying to, you know, explain away their allegations about you. Um, and that, that, you know... It, you want more. You want more days in a campaign to be your days than your opponent's days if you're going to win. And if every day is spent responding to their stories rather than setting the agenda yourself, that is what a losing campaign looks like. I guess we've got into the habit because of the referendum in thinking that civil wars are the most interesting things to the most interesting contests that there are. And I think the Tories have. It's very notable, like the resignations from the Open Britain. You know, they have instantly snapped back into ultra loyalists. Whatever that Linton Crosby thing is about not being commentators, your competitors or your participants. Participants. Not, yeah. So you you are not there to give your running commentary, or just there to be a foot soldier, right? It, it, it that is that that is a difficult media environment because then what the media presumably wants to write about it's got very trained to write about boris versus dave and internal labor splits so trying to say actually no the contest you want to pay attention to is labor versus the tories that feels sort of people don't want to be like oh yeah obviously you hate the tories yeah whatever it's it must be quite hard to get those messages across i do i mean i think that both labor and the conservatives are in deeply, deeply tribal organisations full of people who are have huge loyalty towards their party. And in an election time, everyone remembers who the main enemy is and, and, and is focused on fighting that enemy because everyone in the Labour Party believes that any Labour government is always going to be better than any Conservative government. And, and that's what you're fighting for. Um, I do think that there is obviously a lot of um, kind of commentary about inter-party mm. uh, splits, but that is inevitably going to be the case when Labour is less competitive than it ordinarily should be. Um, it's very it's very hard for, I presume, journalists to write with a straight face that Labour is competitive for power when our poll ratings are half the Conservative Party's poll ratings. It's quite hard for Theresa May to keep a straight face, to be honest with you, which is one of the things I'm enjoying. You know, Theresa May trying to kind of put her kind of like, no, I'm very, I'm very concerned. I mean, you know, I know it's 24 points in the polls, but the polls have been wrong before. But yeah, in terms of this point about his absence, so would you say, so why do you think his increased presence would be a problem now? I think when you have a leader with um, kind of subterranean approval ratings, I think he's reached the lowest level ever today with UCOV as minus 65 or Mm. something. Um, The more exposure that person gets, the the worse it gets uh, for the party. Uh, therefore, you, you know, a sensible strategy in that situation is to try and have as least exposure as you possibly can. In terms of, you know, a- again, you know, you can't change the policies, you've just inherited the situation. How would you say Theresa May is, is, is doing, obviously, in terms of the politics, she looks on course for a big win. But 
is it would you say it's a great campaign or you know how would you manage that one i think that for me the, the the everything you see about the campaign so far from both parties is two parties who weren't ready and expecting an election so it's very much a phony war at the moment you know i'm sure Theresa May had to keep the decision and the, incredibly secret, and all credit to them, they did keep it incredibly secret. But that means very few people knew, and it's really apparent that they didn't have a lot of the rudiments of a campaign in place, and obviously neither did Labour. So they're doing sort of some set piece visits that presumably are very easy to arrange at short notice. But that's it at the moment, and I presume that once Parliament ends and we move into the more a more formal campaign. They will have had time to catch up with that and, um, uh, you know, construct a proper grid and, uh, and run a, a more lively campaign. I think the politics, as you say, are the Conservative Party have done well in framing the campaign on her terms. They have framed the campaign around leadership uh, and, and, and which, which, you know, who do you want to send into the negotiations to represent Britain? And that obviously is a question that, that favours uh, the Conservatives, and they, that's why they framed it in that way. It depends how that plays out. Um, it feels a very boring campaign at the moment, definitely. Tell me um, about it. Incredibly boring. But then when you look at the um, in the evening news broadcast, you can see some very, very professional pictures coming back from the Conservative Party, perhaps less so from Labour. But you can see why they're, they're playing it so safe, because if you think elections are won on in that metric in terms of what the pictures look like each day, then they're doing very well so far. Can I ask you a final question, which is, what's the happiest, nicest... We need a bit of joy and uplift. What's the nicest, happiest memory you have of any of the campaigns you've worked on? In fairness, all all the four of the campaigns I've worked on have been amazing experiences. Campaigns are brilliant things to work on. They are incredibly bonding experiences. You make friendships for life. Everyone, you know, throughout sort of the Blair Brown years, obviously there were... D- degrees of division, but everyone during those campaigns comes together. They're one team seeking one objective to beat the Tories. And obviously winning is the greatest moment imaginable. And, you know, those three election victories when we won, nothing compares to that. Um, and, and I have incredibly fond memories and they are huge fun to work on. But even in 2015, it's still a very fun thing to do. It's, it's, a, it's a very nice, pleasant experience to work on a campaign and I would recommend it to anyone. <laughs> Okay. Was, uh, yeah, I'm, I can't. I think there's probably a few people in uh, in Labour this time who think, um, yeah, that would be a, not maybe the, the first campaign to cut your teeth on this year. But I, I like that. I like your optimism. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now Kate Mossman, our, our arts editor and pop critic, is joining us to talk about the music of 1997, um, well, as you've written, uh, I mean, Tracy Thorne's got a great piece in the magazine this week about what it was like to be at those sort of strange Brit Awards where Tony Blair turned up and met David Bowie. Um, but people were listening to rubbish. Sorry, Stephen, to break this to you, but we were, were listening to... And what we actually I'll dominated go- the charts was rubbish. That makes me feel a bit better because, to be honest, what I know about Britpop wouldn't f- uh, fill a cup until uh, we were talking about this in 
what I'm now going to refer to the, as the green room, i.e. this room when the sound is turned off. Um, I thought that song two was Britpop, but apparently it's not. I mean, it's by Blur. You know, like, Why is that not Britpop? I, I think, think a load of stuff seems to pass for Britpop now in retrospect. Like, um, but doesn't Black Grape. Grape. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> fat, what is it? Fat Neck. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a terrible song. Um, yeah, I just think Blur, the Britpop era, I think ends with Park Life, actually. Weirdly, t- 1997 oh, is I kind know of Park Life. the end of, uh, it's kind of the end of Britpop. In a way, Becoming the kind of do- dominant political force kind of ki- took some of the cultural wind out of its sails. And, mm. um, you know, Be Here Now, which is the kind of most overhyped albums. I think it was Dorian Linsky was saying, if you read the initial reviews for it, clearly when everyone was whacked off their tits, they're all like, this is amazing. And you should listen to it now, and it's just 11 of the yeah. same songs. So, Kate, imagine you're talking to a musical idiot. Perhaps that won't be hard for you to imagine in this context. Explain what what is Britpop. Like, explain its kind of moods and... Sort of very um, commercially successful and carefully orchestrated battle between essentially three or four bands, which we all remember. And this is the the uh, the way history views that era is that you know it was just Blur, it was just Oasis, it was just Pulp. And the great thing we we did a little bit of a kind of revisionist look at the era, and we looked at the big sellers. Um, the biggest selling single of '97 was "Candle in the Wind," um, followed closely by "Missing You" by Puff Daddy and Faith Evans. Uh, there was also everyone was listening to Barbie Girl. That I remember. That is a great song. This was like four weeks at number one in the in the kind of honeymoon period straight after the election. Come so in a way, Barbie, that is no the party. that's the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. In the same way that um, D-Reams, Things Can Only Get Better, and Katrina and the Waves, Love Shine a Light, which was this wonderful kind of vote of confidence for the rest of the world at the time of the Eurovision. Do you know what um, I want to really want to listen to? If anyone out there has got a keyboard and more musical ability than me, I want someone to rescore Things Can Only Get Better to be in a minor key, because I feel like, I really feel like <laughs> that's, that's the... That's, should be things the Can Only Get Worse. <laughs> to 2017 should just be a sort of really sad, plungent version of Things Can Only Get Better. You know like, what I mean? It, like, it was Lana Del Rey sure. kind of version. Of it. Yeah, I mean, we, we think of it as being this sort of the great um, cultural party that was being had by the nation. But if you think of that, the, the mawkishness of Missing You and Candle in the Wind as being the two big hits of that year, um, Tracy makes this lovely point in her piece where she remembers being at the, uh, I think it was the 96 Brits, um, and sitting on the table alongside members of Massive Attack. Um, Goldie was on her table? Goldie, possibly, maybe even Bjork, and just looking at this kind of very white, very male, very conservative um, act going on between the the tables that had Blur and the tables that had Pulp, and thinking, my table's where the interesting stuff's being made. This kind of marginalised area where you had had Portishead, you had um, uh, the remnants of Trip Hop, and all this really interesting stuff, which she said that you can trace right through now to FKA Twigs and James Blake. But the way she makes this great point is like, who says that they're influenced by Oasis now? Nobody. And at the time, we didn't realise how conservative that music was, but it was um, because, in a way, we weren't into the nostalgia movement in music yet. But, yeah, they were just sounding like the Beatles. Um, it was the Kinks, the Beatles. Blair brought this up in a speech at the Brits in 96. Well, if you remember, Noel Gallagher kept being done for sort of lifting bits. So he, um, believe, I think, is is Mott the Hoople, uh, yeah. was all the young dudes. Um, you know, there's a T-Rex, I think they had to give a, a bit of cash to. Don't Look Back in Anger has got some, some similarities to John Lennon's <laughs> Imagine. It was a very... 
But the other thing I think about it, which is which I why I think I think it's made for nostalgia, is it's it's quite a relaxingly irony-free era. Like it uh, it was quite cheesy, right? Mm. It was quite stri- like the patriotism, which John Harris brings out in his cover essay. You know, this adoption of the Union Jack, which clearly people on the left were unhappy with. Our leader from '97 talks about the bulldog imagery of, of Labour's '97 campaign, and you know Jerry Halliwell in the Union Jack dress. I like how we're never happy. I think that's one of my favourite things about our archive material. It really does not matter where the Labour Party is. We are never wrong about it. (laughs) But it was one of the first times that the Union Jack was sort of used without any um, sort of wider sense of this being, is this a a troubling thing? The fact that, you know, Foxtons used it on the top of their minis as a kind of... And even the England flag with um, Three Lions 96. Yeah. And then the rehash of that again, like Three Lions 98. And then they, yeah, they kept trying to do it. Do you remember any music from that era, Stephen, apart from Barbie Girl? Uh, I remember Barbie Girl. I remember... When did the... I, the Spice Girls of the first band, I think I properly followed the the career of through to what wannabe all the way to Goodbye when Baby Spice left and they no, had the video. No, Ginger Spice left. <laughs> <laughs> Baby Spice, she would not have left the Spice Girls. Whichever one of the Spices it was that left. I mean, yeah. It was I, Ginger. Ginger. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can't be expected to follow these things. I was teeny tiny. Um, but... So I remember the Spice Girls. I, th- um, uh, what else do I remember from that era? I mean, I was going to say I remember Song Two, but according to your weird timeline, that's not that doesn't. Well, I just count. think a lot of things of Britpop are actually mid nineties, right? So All Right by Supergrass is actually way before ninety seven. It was early. I, yeah, I think a lot of it's the kind of thing, and it comes on, and I I, I recognise it because obviously my mum had me indecently young. There are an awful lot of things that I. I have fallen asleep next to speakers. Why I'm now so deaf? Uh, have fallen asleep oh. next to speakers. Speakers of <laughs> like that great so Peter K routine about the fact that all the music that we grew up with is just going to sound really stupid. It's like you know, put them smack me bitch up. Your, yeah. mom, your <laughs> man loves prodigy. Um, is that what you fell asleep to? Like yeah, you know, like yeah, tricky. Well, there are some things like so. Tam, Tam's in Archer, who I know is not Britpop, but that always just sends me straight off to sleep. That's even, beautiful. Even when I can tell it's not something. Yeah, you know, even say like Lords of the New Church objectively a great song and not one which ought to make me sleepy but at any time in the day I start to feel like oh I just I, just <laughs> I think um, one of the great things about pop music is that you know there's always a, a vast gulf between what the critics say people were listening to in retrospect and what the people were actually listening to and um, we were looking at the uh, top 10 singles of 1977 this is the year of punk Mull of Kintyre by Wings <laughs> Brotherhood of Man Don't Cry For Me Argentina um, and Elvis Presley's Way Down and Hot Chocolate and Donna Summer. And this is, you know, this is the time that the BBC Four documentaries recast as being, you know, and then suddenly it was and all about the sex pistols. And it, it never is. You and know. actually, no, people weren't putting sage pins through their nose. They were popping home to listen to Mull of Kintyre. Yeah, those were the ones that they <laughs> were Aaron buying, sweater. you know. Yeah, I think 1997's pop charts are a kind of... Uh, although, I, I, well, the other thing I think is really interesting is they there is... Like Barbie Girl being an ex- interesting example is the beginning of that dominance of Europop and of Scandinavian songwriters, right? And that, yeah. Which became a kind of massive... Reclaiming it, because obviously in the 70s with ABBA they were doing it and then mm. it kind of... Yeah, now it's the now it's the Max Martins and all the, the LA songwriting teams are half Scandinavian. And the other massive seller in 95, which is... Uh, I think it kept... Um, sold more than Country House, Common People, uh, and Wonderful, Wonderwall was um, Robson and Jerome's Unchained Melody. <laughs> oh my God. That, Which wouldn't happen now, right? Every time, <laughs> every so often that comes on Magic FM and I try and think about what you the equivalent... You Magic FM? Oh, yeah, and the cab drivers really love Magic FM, Magic right? FM's brilliant. Anyway, don't don't judge me, <laughs> um, Mr. Barbie Girl. Um, 
but the, the, I now try and think, what is the kind of mid-level BBC programme? Or like, it was ITV, wasn't it? It was London's Burning. Like, what is the kind of equivalent of that that would spawn a star? It's kind of like, I think maybe like the guy from Line of Duty re-releasing, <laughs> like, I don't know, an Elvis song or, or something Or Miranda like that. Hart doing White Cliffs of Dover or something. <laughs> yeah. called, and the rest of the Call the Midwife cast, you know. This is what I mean. It was, a, it was in a way, a very relaxingly irony-free zone. It might have been something to do with the power of terrestrial TV as well. The fact that, you know, everyone was watching these guys on wherever it was Sunday night. So they, the mums did go out and buy the record. But I can't imagine that happening now. Is that... So, because the interesting thing is, obviously a lot of grime artists support Jeremy Corbyn, but there isn't that sense of an alchemy between Labour and grime in the way there was between Labour and Britpop, which is odd because in terms of the working-class culture, all, all the, the undercurrents for it to work the same way are all there. Why do you think that hasn't happened in the same way? I don't... I just think it, it was a phenomenon. It had never happened before, and it's never... I mean, it seems tasteless now. It seems embarrassing that Blair was turning up to the, to the Brits before he got in, giving speeches about the importance of, um, you know... Uh, you know, the, the great British bands harking back to the kinks and stuff. I think it was just, we were all, I remember it very clearly being 15 or 16 and we were all just absolutely entranced by this idea that there could actually be a, a meshing of popular culture and number 10. What a great idea. Obviously it didn't work and we're very, very embarrassed now. But also when we, in the New Statesman's 1997 special edition commemorating New Labour, there was a whole bit of artists and writers for whom this was the first time in their adult life there had been a Labour government writing like a poem or something to commemorate the occasion. So I think there was a real feeling that, you know, people who's teenage years had been under Thatcher and had been so shaped by that that hang on a minute our side is winning like this is and that's that was what it was a celebration of actually wasn't it yeah, yeah and I wonder if you know if Jeremy Corbyn were on course for a massive majority maybe he would be you know up there with Stormzy yeah I think they might be a bit shy of getting into bed with pop stars now. I think they saw that it, it didn't quite work because, you know, their promises are never quite going to be followed through on pop stars are always going to feel um, but disaffected. Obama, you know, but Obama had, had, had that same relationship with musicians. And I think in exactly the same way, I remember Jon Stewart on The um, Daily Show doing a joke about the fact that, you know, once now that the Obamas were in the White House in 2008, it was the first time somebody other than country and Western stars was going to perform at the White House. Right, that was the equivalent for them. And yeah. you did have, you know, the stars of Hamilton. You had Beyonce singing At Last at mm. the inauguration. Ball. So you did have, and that was again, that was a, a moment of finally we've got our guy yeah. like in, into power. Yeah. There was when we were looking at the, the songs, there was, um, I'd forgotten in Three Lions that Blair had actually used a line out of Three Lions um, in his speech uh, the year before he got in. 17 years of hurt never stopped us dreaming. Labour's coming home, he said at the Labour Party conference. And I don't imagine anybody was cringing. All those oh so nears. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, Stephen. It really was a more innocent time, wasn't it? It was just a. It was just a bubble of very strong feeling, wasn't it? But I economically, think... we were. We were. I mean, it was economically. It was a bubble, as it turned out, as well. You know, economically. This, this is what I mean about the difference between the feeling of this election, even for Tories, who I think you know are feeling that they're about to win it really handsomely. It's not a feel-good election. There is no. There is no hope and optimism here. Um, Kate. Final question: If Theresa May was a band. What band would she be? Oh, that's difficult. Um, Texas. <laughs> wow. Oh, you really didn't like white on. Was it white on? They did do white on blonde. <laughs> They're back. They're back, back, back. Wow. I, that's, <laughs> I feel I've offended you. <laughs> I quite like Texas. <laughs> Your first time round. Charlene. Are they? Um, Charlene no. Terry, They're Scottish. Oh, so I, no, I, I, they're not Sixpence on the Richer. That's a band, not a song, isn't it? <laughs> no, they're the ones that who was did a band. Kiss Me Beneath the Milky Way. Oh, Twilight. Kiss Me, yeah. ba, 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 something. Who's the Lighthouse family then in politics? 
that's like I sort of imagine I can imagine Boris Johnson on a show going <laughs> we have been lifted <laughs> like and doing the big arms isn't Joe Moore in the lighthouse family he lives in a windmill that's Jonathan Creek <laughs> another great 90s I think it was a, it was a better time anyway before I like drop into a nostalgia coma thank you Kate for joining us thank you very much And now I'm going to do a short dramatic reading from the New Statesman's May 1997 special edition when uh, the magazine ran a leader entitled Dawn Comes Up Like Thunder. Labour's landslide and its little echo for the Liberal Democrats changes everything. Tony Blair can be our best Prime Minister since Churchill. What you're mostly going to hear in the background of this is just slow sobbing from Stephen. Everyone will have a favourite moment from the night Labour achieved the most handsome victory in the party's history. For those following the story on television, it would be hard to beat the announcement at Enfield Southgate when the returning officer had announced that the youthful and charming Stephen Twigg had defeated Michael Portillo. As the camera focused on Twigg's face, his rolling eyes reflected back our collective disbelief at the scale of the triumph. Portillo, a politician remembered only for his graceless attempts to dress his political ambitions in the uniform of the SAS and robes of the monarchy, makes flesh the nation's sense that it could not bear a younger, cruder version of Margaret Thatcher. In choosing Major in 1992, the electorate believed it had brought a nation at ease with itself. Instead, we got a Prime Minister with a tourniquet around his neck. We wish him many happy afternoons watching cricket. Later on the morning of 2nd of May, Tony Blair arrived in London to speak beneath an illuminated backdrop, proclaiming, New Labour, New Government. The first light was creeping up the river from Docklands. It is a new dawn, is it not? He murmured, as if the Almighty too had cast a vote. The Labour leader then chose his words with care. Having won as new Labour, he would govern as new Labour. The size of the victory imposed a special responsibility on the winning party to have regard for the whole nation's interests. It was a time to heal divisions. Anyway, I'm not going to read anymore because I think any of our I mean, this is just ma- ma- masochism, isn't it? I mean, this is... It's just going to make... It's just going to make any of our Labour listeners... I think the worst sad. thing about this is I read this and I go... You know how there's like occasionally you read um, novels, particularly by elderly authors, and you have a horrible sense of the writer's erection, and it kind of has that <laughs> problem. But the sad thing is, is I I read this and I think I feel it's only going to take maybe one, two more election defeats before I too proper, could like, write this leader without going whoa, whoa, whoa. It's going to be a proper Vic Reeves thigh rubber, isn't yeah. it? When uh, when Labour eventually get back in for our leader, there's just some. Um, there was just some signs in it that uh, I mean there there are what I think is it's like one of those great kind of novels as well when you see the seeds of the eventual horror being sown right from the start you know it's like the Chekhov's gun thing so at the end of it it says we are delighted to see the radical Frank Field at Social Security well as it turned out he rowed incessantly with um, an untried to undermine and fell out with Harriet Harman she lasted only just over a year in the cabinet that went quite badly um, yeah and it's just. It's just got some things in it like... Um, but like Beyonce, she's a survivor, she's a something else. Anyway. Um, the greatest leaders trust the people. But yeah, and I just really like um, the last, the, the final paragraph says, the new statesman has not been comfortable with some of Labour's bulldog imagery in this campaign, but perhaps we can agree that it is a line from Kipling that captures the kind of dawn this is, one that comes up like thunder. And I'm just thinking maybe, Stephen, we should pay some attention already to what literary references we're going to want to use in our leader after the next election, 20 years on. Well, that's a cheerful thought. We'll Something be back next week. Dostoevsky, probably. <laughs>
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush. We're produced by India Burke and mixed by James Shields. This week, why not go to newstatesman.com forward slash 1997 and wallow in nostalgia? Let's face it, you might not get another Labour government in your lifetime.